Welcome to the Vox Church Podcast. We're so excited that you're taking some time today to listen to today's message. If something from today's message specifically touches your heart, text Vox Church, all one word, to 97000, and one of our leaders would love to connect with you. Also, make sure you visit voxchurch.org for more information about our church and upcoming service locations and times. God bless you. Amen. Welcome to Vox Church. If you're new to Vox, my name is Justin, lead pastor. Thanks for being with us today. I love Easter Sunday. It is my favorite Sunday of the year, the Sunday that we just get to celebrate, meditate upon, study the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Just awesome, awesome. Such an exciting time. But uh, a lot of exciting things going on right now at Vox. Just a few that I just want to celebrate with you today marks the beginning of our Sunday morning services in Worcester, Massachusetts. And so Vox Church Worcester, isn't that awesome? See, you got to realize when you're a part of this family, we're one church on mission together, nine different locations. And so Vox Church Worcester starts Sunday morning services today. Also our Springfield location, Vox Springfield has been really praying for a permanent facility. It's our hope to transition a number of our mobile churches into permanent facilities this year. And just last week, we signed a lease on a new home for Vox Church Springfield. And so we're excited about that. Go ahead and put that up there on the screen. It's right downtown Springfield, Massachusetts, right near the Basketball Hall of Fame, right near the new big casino that they put in. And so we're excited to be there. It's going to be awesome. And, uh, and we'll go through all the zoning, all the renovations and everything else. But listen, I just want to say for all the family at Vox, thank you. Thanks for being on mission with us. Thanks for being a part of what God is doing in the local church. Excited about next week. We start a series called Convictions, and it's going to be an important one where we really go down deep, dig some deep roots, and, uh, and build a life that's founded on the truth of God's Word. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is where we'll be today, an incredible passage about the resurrection of Jesus. I want to start in verse 49, and uh, I'll read down to verse 58. It says this, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Look at this. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What a powerful text to focus on. I can't wait to dive into it today. I want to speak to you today under the heading, Death Doesn't Win. Death doesn't win. Death doesn't win. This is the most important truth in our lives. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. Thank you for the family of God. Thank you for the church and the power of your gospel. I pray that you'd speak to every person here today, no matter where we came from, what our background is, what our story is. I thank you, God, that you are specifically, uniquely, and individually calling us now. And so I pray, give us ears to hear and eyes to see in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen, amen, amen. Do you consider yourself an optimist? You know, when you look at your life, do you say, oh, the glass is half full, you know? The sun will come up tomorrow. Is that kind of your perspective? I don't 
know about you, I want to be an optimist. I think by nature, I don't think I'm a pessimist, but I think I'm more of a realist, you know, like a like just a classical New England realist, you know, like, like mm, we'll see about that. You know, like I want to be an optimist, but I find myself drifting into pessimism more often than I'd like to admit, you know, and, and uh, just a couple weeks ago, um, my, uh, my wife's cup holder in her car broke. Now, that doesn't sound like a very big deal, and I didn't think it was a very big deal. It's just a cup holder. I was like, I can fix this, you know, and so I went in there, and I tried to fix it for about five minutes, and if you know me, I can't fix anything, and so I, I, I kind of, I YouTubed it, you know, and they were like, by like step 17, I was like, forget it. I can't do that. I'm, just, I'm not going to do this, so I called the dealer, and the dealership tells us, well, your Ford uh, vehicle is um, just over its mileage for warranty, and so you're going to have to pay for this. I'm like, oh, okay, that's great, but I'm optimistic. It's going to be fine. You know, and so just before we got it in, the trunk broke. Like, when I say the trunk broke, like, I mean pieces of the trunk just fell out. It was like, oh, oh, that's not good. So now I got to get a trunk and a cup holder fixed. But still, hey, it's okay. It's okay. We're going to, you know, like, let's keep, the, keep the, the positive spirit, you know. And so the day before we were dropped the truck off, uh, the brakes start grinding. I'm like, okay, that's not great. And so I get in there, find out I need a new center console apparatus, a new trunk lift support system. I need new brakes for the back, four new tires, and my stressor shot. And I was like... Okay, I'm not feeling very optimistic right now. You know what I mean? Like, like all my optimism was gone. I was like, this just stinks. You know, like this is just hard. And, and I don't know how to look at this on the bright side. There's no bright side here. And so, you know, my kids were going to go to college, but now after paying the $70 million vehicle bill, <laughs> I'm just kidding. They're still going in Jesus' name. But we're going to have to get creative. But the last two years, I think for all of us, have stretched our optimism. Come on, just be honest. You've stretched your optimism a little bit because you started out pretty optimistic. I can remember two years ago in March, I was like talking to another pastor and we were like, oh yeah, we'll be meeting by Easter. Yeah, we weren't meeting by Easter, right? We weren't meeting as a church for a lot longer than that. And I know that for all of us, our plans have been disrupted. Our lives have been challenged. And so, you know, you were going to be in that wedding or you were going to go to that wedding and now that wedding got postponed and then it got postponed again. And then it was in somebody's living room, right? And it was like, you know, it wasn't at all what you expected. And then, you know, there was the travel that you were going to do that got canceled and then rescheduled and then canceled again. And then somebody got sick and, and all the different challenges, all the different trials of this last two years, a significant test of an optimistic mind. I read a study recently that found that 80% of the people that were polled in this study reported having significant symptoms of depression. 80%, 61% reported moderate or severe anxiety. Now think about those numbers, 80%, 61%. That's most of us. That's the majority of people. Substance abuse, suicidal ideation have doubled in frequency over the last two years. And you might be here and maybe you lost your job or maybe you lost a loved one or maybe you changed careers or, or maybe you've been under such financial stress or maybe you're here and your marriage has ended in these last two years or it's on the verge. And you're thinking, I don't even know how to keep this thing together. So many problems have come up. And so you might find yourself running to a drink or running to a pill or running to something to just try to keep you from dealing with the reality that's all around you. Somebody though, you're here and you're like, if I'm honest, things are pretty good. My, you know, my job's going good, business is going good, bank account's looking good, everything's looking good. But these last two years have forced you to deal with the fact that that's not enough. That even though those things were good, you're still not in control. Even though those things were good, you still had to confront the fact that life is fragile and that you can't control everything. It's fleeting. I think if we've learned one thing in the last 24 months is that optimism will eventually run out of gas. Sometimes you can't find a bright side. Sometimes the glass just straight up is not half full. Sometimes it's just empty. Sometimes it's shattered and broken on the ground. Right? Like, like, that's the truth. So where are you going to turn when optimism runs out? 
Where are you going to turn when it's not enough? That's exactly what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. Paul talks about flesh and blood not being able to inherit the kingdom. He's contrasting two different realities. He's saying some people live just the natural, flesh and blood, but other people understand that there's another way to live. There's a higher, a supernatural way to live. And so he says you need more than just optimism. Your heart needs hope. Go ahead and look at that person next to you and tell them, you need hope. You need some hope. Come on, just tell them. You need some hope. You can tell them, encourage them. You need some hope. You do. So do I. Your heart needs hope. See, optimism says, try to look on the bright side. That's what optimism says. But hope says there really is a bright side. There really is a bright side. It's deeper. It's more substantive. Your heart needs hope, not just optimism, but hope. But where do you find a hope like that? Where do you find a hope like that? Because hope needs proof. Hope needs evidence for the soul. It can't just be pie in the sky optimism. It has to be rooted. It has to be deeper. And when we look around the world, we don't find a whole lot of reasons to be hopeful, right? All you got to do is look at the news and you'll hear about wars and you'll hear about corruption and you'll hear about injustice and you'll hear about disease and everyone's got an agenda. Everybody's working in the angle. You don't trust anybody. And so hope feels a little unrealistic. For some of us, hope feels more like a fairy tale embraced by the naive, right? And it seems that the great thinkers of our time aren't offering up a whole lot of hope. If you look at the philosophers and the sages of the last 150, 200 years, what you find is their overarching message seems to be, you know, your life is basically meaningless. You know, you're a collection of atoms. You're just a random collision of molecules and you're an evolutionary accident. There's nothing transcendent, nothing eternal about you. The early 1900s, Leo Tolstoy taught us that the only absolute knowledge obtainable by man is that life is meaningless. Well, thanks, Leo, right? That's great. Never saw that one on a coffee cup, right? It's like, hmm, <laughs> cheers, right? French philosopher Albert Camus said it like this. He said, life is meaningless, but worth living, provided you recognize it's meaningless. I was like, okay, not feeling much better, but my favorite is Bertrand Russell. Look at what Bertrand Russell said. He said, man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end they were achieving. His origin, his growth, his hopes, his fears, his loves, his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. No fire, no heroism. No intensity of thought and feeling can preserve the individual life beyond the grave. All the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, look at this, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only, look at this, within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Dang! Aren't you glad you didn't marry that guy, right? Wake up in the morning, it's like, how you doing? Uh, not so good. The foundation of unyielding despair, is that all that life has to offer? He was serious. He's considered one of the great minds of his generation. Is that all that life has to offer? Or could there actually be a hope that changes everything in life? Hmm. During COVID, you know, one of my favorite activities was helping my kids with their math homework. No, not really. <laughs> but my, my oldest son at the time, he was in pre-algebra, getting ready for algebra that he's in now. And so you're learning all the new algebraic equations. And some of you, just when I talk about this, you get a cold chill because you hate Y equals MX plus B. But, uh, but like, I remember in that time, I, I, I didn't really love it in school, but I did okay. And so I was like, hey, I can help you, no problem. Because, you know, in, in you know, earlier math, you, you add addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. But then all those things kind of come together and you've got to add these symbols and equations and everything else. And so the rules of arithmetic are helpful with algebra, but they're not enough, right? 
And so one day we're sitting around the kitchen table like we did every day, right? And, uh, and, and, and he's like, Dad, uh, I can't figure this problem out. And I'm like, oh, I can help you, pal. Google, what would you have to say? You know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, I can help you out, you know? And I'm like, oh, use this equation, which I completely just ripped off Google. And he's like, I can't use that equation. I'm like, why not? It's the, it's the right answer. And he said, well, I can't use that equation because we haven't learned that equation yet. I was like, oh, okay. So certain problems require certain equations, but if you don't know the equation, you can't solve the problem, right? And so some of us are trying to solve our deep problems, your problem of hope, your problem of meaning, your problem of purpose, trying to solve our deep problems with arithmetic. You're trying to solve it with a new, let me just add a new house. Let me just add a new car. Let me just add a new relationship. Let me just add a new career. Let me just subtract this. Let me just change that career. And you're trying to solve your deeper problems with arithmetic, but the problem is you can't. It requires a higher math. You can't solve algebraic equations with arithmetic alone. And so it requires something higher. And Easter Sunday is an invitation into a new way of answering your deepest problems. It's an invitation into at your core, discovering that you are more than flesh and blood. You are more than a collection of molecules. You are made in the image of God and you have within yourself an eternal spirit. That's not just a nice idea. It is life and it is truth. You were created in God's image. And if you want to find peace and meaning and hope and life, you need to learn a new equation. And that's what Paul calls it. He calls it the mystery. The mystery in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it's called the hope of glory. And it begins with this, that Christians believe that the body of Jesus was physically resurrected from the dead on Sunday morning 2,000 years ago. Physically resurrected from the dead. It was not just a spiritual resurrection, not just an ethereal concept, not a myth or a fable that developed over centuries. Christians actually believe that it's an historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth entered a tomb fully, completely, and absolutely dead. And he walked out three days later alive. It's real. It actually happened. And it's the linchpin of our entire faith. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 15 to tell us that if it's not true, Christians have nothing to offer the world. We have nothing to offer the world. Yeah, we've got some morals, but other faiths can provide morals. We have nothing to offer the world if this is not true. But you have to understand that long before there was an empty tomb, God had whispered this truth to his prophets. That God had been preparing humanity with eyes to see and ears to hear to understand that there is in fact a coming Savior who would live a perfect life, die a substitutionary death, and rise from the dead. The prophet David said it like this in Psalm 16. He said, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one or holy one see decay. Now, David wasn't the faithful and holy one that he was talking about there. David died and his body did decay. He was speaking of a savior who would come, who would be perfectly faithful. The prophet Isaiah, 600 years before Christ lived, said this in Isaiah 27. He will swallow up on this mountain, by the way, we found out it was Golgotha, that was the name of the mountain, the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations. What does that mean? He will swallow up death forever. Now, who will swallow up death? We're told of a man who would live that perfect life, the savior of the world. But Hosea tells us that that man who's gonna save us is somehow mysteriously at the same time also God himself. That's why he says in Hosea 13, I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I, I, the Lord will redeem them from death. And so the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's how John, Jesus' best friend, starts his gospel. 
The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ, this man, lived a perfectly sinless life, fulfilled over 300 specific biblical prophecies, and then died on a cross as a substitute for our sins. His body then entered the grave, but something happened on Sunday morning that changed Jesus from a dying martyr who would soon be forgotten to the absolute hope of the world. He walked out of the grave. He exited the tomb. He, in fact, is alive. Now, his opponents have scrambled for generations to try to deny that truth, right? They said, oh, someone stole the body. The problem was, in Jesus' time, there were hundreds of eyewitnesses, okay? Hundreds, not five, not ten. Hundreds that say, I walked with him, I talked with him, I ate food with him, I felt his scars. It's real. And in 1 Corinthians 15, this letter we're reading, it was written in 53 A.D., That's just 20 years after Jesus rose from the dead, okay? And in this letter, Paul tells us that there have been over 500 eyewitnesses who could account for his resurrection, and most of them are still alive. And so he's like, listen, just go ask them. Imagine living in this day and hearing in Corinth that Jesus rose and saying, he's saying, go ask him. And so you go interview this guy. It's like, yeah, I saw him. I ate with him. I I talked to him. Then you interview this guy, this guy. Well, how many would it take? You're at 28, 29, 30. You're doing these interviews and you're going, oh my goodness, I don't think all these people are crazy. I'm up to 47. I've talked to all these people. They're normal people. They're just like you and me, but they have seen him alive. See, historians have struggled for centuries to explain the explosive growth of the Christian faith. They've tried to say a thousand different things. How is it? that a small band of impoverished, uneducated people became the most influential faith on earth in just a few generations. How is that possible? And in 2,000 years, no one has put forward a rational historical explanation except that the resurrection of Jesus actually happened. I love what German historian Wolfhart Penneberg said. Now, if your name is Wolfhart, I feel like we should just listen to you because that's a legit name. He said, the evidence of Jesus' resurrection is so strong, Wolfhart said, that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it is a very unusual event. That's an understatement. And second, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live, right? Because if it's real, it means that everything Jesus taught Everything Jesus stood for is true. It's not just a nice, silly religious idea. It's not just an ethereal spiritual concept. This man actually walked out of the grave, and he's still alive. And his death and his resurrection have direct implications for your life and your death. And maybe you're here, and you're 52, and you got it all figured out. Or maybe you're here, and you're 17, and you've got a lot of questions. Or maybe you feel like you've been following Christ for 30 years. Or maybe you're not even sure if you're a follower of Jesus. Wherever you find yourself, this has direct implications for your life and for your death because we're told in the text that death has a sting, right? Talked about death and a sting. Think about this for a moment. It's not talking about a bee sting or a little prick. It's talking about something poisonous like a scorpion sting. Death has an actual sting. And I think most of us go to great lengths to forget this. We live in a world that tries to avoid death, tries to pretend like it's not real, tries to pretend like even talking about it is inappropriate. But I think on Resurrection Sunday, it might be most appropriate to genuinely reflect on the reality that one day soon, maybe sooner than you think, you are going to die. You are going to cross over into the unknown. Your heart will stop beating. So what's on the other side? I want to suggest that the fear of death hovers over all of us like a great scorpion, that it influences us far more than we think, that even though we don't think about death as often as we can, try to avoid it, you know, it still is there. The book of Revelation describes a pale horse whose rider's name is death. 
a terrifying thought. The pale horse. If you've ever come close to death, maybe you've caught a glimpse of that, that pale horse. See it, feel it, sense it. It's terrifying. It shakes you, changes you. So a couple weeks ago, me and my son Noah went to uh, a Brooklyn Nets basketball game and um, had a great time. It was super fun. It was his birthday, and so I took him as a, as a gift. Just he and me, it, just he and I went to the game. And, you know, you get stuck in New York City traffic at the end, and it's a pain in the neck. And so we're, we're getting home really, really late. And we get all the way just five minutes from our house. We're about to get off the exit on 95. And um, about a quarter mile from the exit, in the blink of an eye, three deer in the middle of the highway. And I didn't even, my foot didn't even touch the brake. I hit the deer 70 miles an hour, just head on. Sorry, my pastor. 65 miles an hour, I hit the deer. <laughs> 65, 64, because I don't, you know, 64. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. And I pulled, I, I pulled off the highway, and my heart was just pounding. I mean, my heart was like pounding. I didn't know it was sleeping. I woke up, my son, I was like, wake up, wake up, we were fine. Physically, the car was not fine, but... Uh, but, you know, um, I found myself, I'm driving home. My car's like, you know, like barely got home. And I'm just thinking, I'm like, Lord, thank you for my pillow. Lord, thank you for shoes. Lord, thank you for my toothbrush. Lord, thank you. Like, all of a sudden, everything looked different. I don't know if you ever had an experience like that, but everything just looked different. Like, everything looked different because I came to terms with what is always true, but often forgotten, and it's that this life is fragile. This life is so, so fragile. How could we forget it? How could we pretend it's not real? If you're here and you've lost a loved one, maybe you've felt that feeling, how fragile life is. If you're here and you had that health scare, you get that lump, and you're not sure what it is, and you're waiting for the test results, that's that pale horse just coming by your house. And you feel it, you sense it, it changes you. Some of us are trying to avoid it. Some of us are trying to numb ourselves to it. And some of us, more than we realize, your life is defined by the fear of death. And you don't really think of it that way, but you won't get on an airplane, and you won't do this, and you won't do that, and you're always nervous about your kids, and all these different things. And at the root, it's a fear. It's a terror of death. And what you have to understand is that the resurrection of Jesus is the only answer. It's the only answer. Look at what Paul says in verse 54. He says, death is swallowed up. Oh, I pray these words come alive to you, that you understand their implications. He says they're swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where, where's your sting? The sting of death, look at this, is sin. The power of sin is the law. Oh, what does that mean? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wants you to know that underneath your fear of death, there is a subconscious awareness of sin. See, every human heart, has been built by God with an internal receptor, an awareness of God. Though you may not acknowledge it with your mind, your soul knows that he is there. And a holy God, there's an awareness that he in fact does exist. And you know in your soul that you're not right with this holy God. There's this awareness. That's why you have these feelings of guilt. That's why you have these feelings of anxiety. That's why you often feel like you're not good enough or worthy enough. You can't do enough. And so you try to do better at work. You try to do better at school. You try to do better with your family. Always feeling like you're not quite enough. What is is that aching thing inside me, that inner murmur of self-reproach, that thing inside you is an awareness of sin and a holy God, a guilt that rattles around inside your soul. But when Jesus hung on the cross on Friday afternoon, something was changing between the relationship with God and people, between your connection to God right now. And that's why Peter says in 1 Peter 2, look at it, he being Christ himself, 
Look at these words, bore our sins in his body on the cross. He bore our sins in his body. This means that Jesus, when he hung on the cross, saw your life. God, who's outside of time, saw beginning and end. He saw you long before you were born, every sin you'd ever commit, and the day you would die. He saw it all. He totaled it up. He took the penalty of your sin, and he placed it within his own perfect son. So that when Jesus Christ hung on the cross, he took the penalty of your sin, and he gave you a great exchange. So that in taking your sin, he would then give you his righteous record before God of righteousness. And so by faith in Christ, by trusting in him alone, by receiving grace, the righteousness of Jesus could be imputed to you and the sin of your life could be imputed to him. And in that great exchange, God now welcomes you home. And so in 1 Corinthians, look at this, this is crazy. The greatest news you'll ever hear in your heart. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul describes it like this. He says, God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us. This is so much better than man-made religion. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. He doesn't say for the people who do it just right. He doesn't say for the people who think just right, the people who act just right, the people who live just right. It's for all those who believe. So Jesus rose from the dead. And his resurrection was the confirmation. It was the receipt of your redemption. See, if he hadn't risen, then you wouldn't know if any of his claims were true. He'd just be another martyr who died. But because Christ rose, you can be sure that that redemption is actually true. But that's not all he did. He also guaranteed your future. Because remember, Jesus didn't just have a spiritual resurrection. It wasn't just like, oh, I saw his spirit in a dream. No, 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 no. They ate food with him. He was a physical body. He was resurrected. But he wasn't also, and some Christians don't understand this, he wasn't a resuscitated man. It wasn't like God just took the dead body of Jesus and brought it back. Something was transformed. Something was changed. The Bible describes it like this, that he was like a seed that was planted in the ground that bore forth a, bore forth a tree. And so the seed and the tree don't look the same, right? They're different. They're fundamentally different, but they come from the same source. And so he was sown a man of dust, but he rose a man of heaven. He had an eternal physical body. And that eternal physical resurrection proves that one day you can have an eternal physical resurrection. This is why Jesus said, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, what does that mean? He means that you are in the body of dust. I don't know if you knew this. Your body's eight buckets of water and two buckets of dirt, right? That's what it is. Ask any scientist. That's what it is. You're a person of dust, but we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. It's why Jesus could say in John 8, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. I wonder if your heart believes that today. I wonder if it has blossomed in your soul because this is hope. This is real hope for you, for your current scenario, for your current trial, for your current struggle. It's stronger than COVID. It's stronger than cancer. It's stronger than car accidents. It's stronger than your questions. It's stronger than fear. It is a supernatural hope. It's a supernatural hope, and it's the hope your heart needs more than anything in a world where everything's unstable, where nothing can be trusted. You need a hope like this. You need a hope like this. I mean, you could side with Leo Tolstoy and Camus and all those other guys. Or you can turn to what your soul cries out for, which is a hope 
that goes beyond this life and touches the next life. Maybe you're hearing me today and you go, well, that sounds, that sounds great, yeah. But um, I'm not really thrilled about the fact that we're all going to die still, right? Because we are. You are going to die. As far as I know, 100 out of 100 are still dying. That's why Paul doesn't say that death can be avoided. That's not what he says. He said death is going to be, did you get it? Swallowed up. That's actually really comforting for me. I know that might not sound comforting, but what he's telling us is that your body of dust must be planted like a seed so that it can rise just as Christ did. But the truth of the resurrection, the truth of the resurrection can transform death from something, check this out, that terrifies to something that sanctifies. You say, well, how? Because you can approach death with a profound hope, knowing that even the trials, the struggles, and the unanswered questions are eventually turned to glory in heaven. Now, you think, well, how does that work? Well, you remember when Jesus rose from the dead, he had an eternal body, but he still had his scars. He still had the scars on his hands and feet. And I thought about that all week. Like, God, you gave Jesus an eternal body. He's, he's risen from the dead. He's never going to die again. He's, he's alive with an eternal supernatural body. He can eat fish and walk through walls. It's amazing. It's supernatural. It's, 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 it's this whole different level, this whole new, this new creation. The first fruits is what the scripture describes as. It's amazing. But why does he still have his scars? Why, why didn't you get rid of those? I mean, if with a new body, you'd think you'd have no, no more scars. But this is the mystery. that his wounds came with him, that God turns scars into glory. And so it is with you. (laughs) See, God doesn't remove all of our suffering and he does not remove death itself. Instead of a pale horse, though, you will enter to a great feast and you will walk right through death and the experience will sanctify you. It will teach you to trust God more. It will teach you to rely on his truth. It will teach you to rejoice even in trial and he will make all of your scars glorious. And all of this is heading somewhere. It's all heading somewhere into a different way of living. And this is what my heart aches for, for the person who's been a follower of Christ for many, many years, or maybe the person that today's your day to trust in Christ, regardless of that history or that background. I wonder if this is true for you because it can be. Look at what he says in verse 58. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. This is important. Knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. So he says, you need to be steadfast, immovable. He's painting the picture of like a fortress, right? Like a fortress that, that's been under attack, under siege, had storms and floods and winds and all kinds of things, but the fortress is just still standing. It's not falling. It's not collapsing. And that's the type of strength you need. Just think about your life. Don't you need that right now? That financial pressure? Don't you need that right now with that business decision you're not sure with that family problem you can't figure out with that health diagnosis that's causing you to stay up at night with that feeling of hopelessness that you don't know exactly how to handle? You need a structure like that, something secure, something strong, a hope that can endure every attack. He wants you to understand when the hope of the resurrection becomes real to your heart, that's what it feels like. It feels like a fortress around your life because it enables you to be strong when your natural person is weak. Faith in God's tomorrow provides the strength you need today.
See, when I really trust in the tomorrow that he promised, I have the strength to face the problems of right now. And it changes today. It changes today. You notice how he finished the phrase? He said, because your labor's not in vain. What does that mean? I love this. It means that none of your tears are wasted, that none of your prayers are wasted, that when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, try this on, this is huge, he inaugurated a new era in history, a new age, the age of the kingdom began. But you still have the body of dust with the promise of eternity. And so we are in the overlap of ages. We are in a time where the natural has not yet passed away, but the eternal has already begun. And in that overlap of ages, you can influence eternity. Every prayer you pray, every word you share, every action of love can influence eternity. You're surrounded by eternal souls. And because you're surrounded by eternal souls, your life and all that you do matters. See, if you are looking for purpose and meaning and hope, it's here. It's here because everything, he says your labor, knowing, be steadfast, immovable, knowing, nothing's in vain. The prayer you prayed for your kid, the sacrifice you made that no one saw, it's not in vain. You can influence eternity. What you do here reverberates there. If this is true, it changes life. And it provides for you a supernatural strength. Faith in God's tomorrow. It provides the strength you need today. I met Doug and Rhonda in 2011. And uh, I met Doug through a mutual friend. He's an attorney and I had some questions. He specializes in nonprofit law, so I just, I wanted to meet him and learn from him and his wife Rhonda, we met just shortly after I met Doug. In 1989, Rhonda began to develop severe rheumatoid arthritis. By the time I met her in 2011, there were only three things that Rhonda could do for herself. She could brush her teeth, she could put on her makeup, and she could do her hair. Starting in 2005, Doug never left her side. Every time she had to eat, he would put the spoon in her mouth. Every time she had to go to the bathroom, he would take her. A couple years ago, I called Doug one afternoon. I just had a question. I said, hey, hey, Doug, how are you? He said, I'm good. I said, Rhonda went home today. I said, oh, well, I didn't even know Rhonda wasn't home. Was she in the hospital? He said, no, she went home today. After six full joint replacements and more surgeries than anyone could count, her kidneys started to fail. So that morning, that morning, the morning that I called, they had gathered as a family. They sang a song together. She took each of her kids, spoke to them individually. And then she lifted up her hands with her whole family there. And she said, I know you can't see this, but I can see him. And it is magnificent. And then she died. Doug and Rhonda were married 41 years, 8 months, and 24 days. And he had carried his wife through extreme illness for over 27 years. 
And that afternoon, I talked with Doug on the phone, and we wept together. And we laughed together. And I heard something in his voice I will never forget. I heard victory. There was sorrow. But there was victory. Because death doesn't win. Because there really is a hope beyond this life. And for too long, you've lived without it. For too long, you've relied on optimism alone. Oh, things will get better. The business will take off. Well, maybe it won't take off. Is that all you got? Because sometimes optimism just isn't enough. You need hope. And that's what Jesus offers every one of our hearts today. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray. I want you to take a moment and reflect upon this question. What is your hope in? Maybe you're a follower of Jesus, but if you're honest, you've been, uh, you've been looking at optimism more than eternal life. Maybe this hope just hasn't been real to you. You want it to be, but it hasn't. Or maybe you're here and you're not even sure you've ever felt or tasted or lived with a hope like this. You've never really hoped in Christ. That idea is maybe something you've kind of avoided. I want to pray for you that we would each have an encounter with Jesus on Easter Sunday. It's not an accident that you're here. But that we would each have an encounter with Jesus right now. He does these things 10,000 different ways. But I pray that he would meet you in a way that changes you. So Lord Jesus, we welcome your resurrected presence, your Holy Spirit, into this room right now. And as we sing this song, I pray that you would meet us in ways that are beyond words. And I pray that you would invite us even now into a greater hope that it would be born in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening today to this Vox Church sermon. If something from today's message spoke to you and you've just made the decision to follow Jesus, text Vox Church, all one word, to 97000, and one of our leaders will help you as you begin your journey with Christ. God bless you.